0: hi and welcome back to the gastronauts podcast my name is peter
1: and my name is reem hasna
0: and we'll be your hosts here at gastronauts we are committed to exploring communication throughout the body with a focus on the crosstalk between gut and brain we invite speakers in this field to share both their research and their life journeys so come join me as we explore the steps that go into shaping a scientist on the gastrons podcast Introduce Dr. Piali Sangupta. She received her PhD from MIT, where she studied pheromone signaling in yeast in Brent Cochran's laboratory. She then did her postdoc at UCSF, where she identified genes that encode how olfactory receptors are encoded in C. elegans with Corey Barman. She was then recruited to Brandeis University in 1996, and she is currently a professor of biology at Brandeis University and was recently elected as an AAS fellow in 2019 for her pioneering work on the molecular genetics of chemical communication and thermosensation in C. elegans. Her lab work has two primary research focuses. One is the cilia squad, which is focused on the mechanisms by which cilia form and function. And the other is this axis of taxis, which is aimed at uncovering how thermal and chemical stimuli are sensed by C. elegans.
2: I'll introduce Dr. Brian. So, Dr. Brian received his PhD from the University of Colorado Health Science Center, where he studied chemoreceptor cells. He is currently an associate professor in the physiology department at Michigan State University. The focus of his lab is to understand how inflammation in the nervous system, neuroinflammation, leads to long-term changes in the neuronal circulatory. So welcome,
1: Dr. Brian. To make this episode easier for you, we wanted to try something new this time around and give you some context for some of the terms and words introduced later in the episode. First, Hirschsprung disease is a disease which is a condition that affects the large intestine, the colon, and causes problems with passing stool. The condition is present at birth as a result of missing nerve cells in the muscle of the baby colon. Then, glia Glia can be called as glial cells or neurogalia, which are non-neuronal cells in the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system that do not produce electrical impulses they maintain the homeostasis finally cilia Cilia are fine hair like projections from certain cells such as those in the respiratory tracts that help to sweep away fluids and particles <music>
0: I'm from Duke University. Um, really great talks from both speakers today. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, my question is for Dr. Sengupta. As I guess I was thinking about your talk, you know, for example, we have chemo sensation, you know, things that we prefer that are innate, like you know, loving sweet things, avoiding bitter things, for example, versus some things we learn over time. And I'm wondering for something like a C. elegans, do you see the same types of things? Are there sort of innate categories and learned categories? And are there some insights you can draw about how those things are determined in the C. elegans?
3: Yeah. Um, thank you, Winston, for that question. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, so there are innate chemicals, obviously, like for uh, so, for example, for. Uh, not us specifically but for uh, mammals some of the innate responses obviously are to toxic chemicals to things like pheromones Um, so worms actually also have all of those responses so worms actually um, and I can talk about this for an hour but worms actually produce like 150 different types of pheromones um, and they have the most amazingly complex responses to those pheromones and those are what we consider innate behaviors and a lot of the responses that I was talking about again just like for toxic chemicals, they're also innate. There are learned behaviors. So, there are chemicals that can be, you know, they're generally indifferent to it. But if you associate it with food, they can become attractive, for instance. So, there is that kind of associative plasticity as well. So, yeah, so the short answer is there are both types of uh, responses. Thank you.
2: Talking about innate and learned, I have a question Do we make memories of these different uh, experiences and different stimuli? that alter the future sensory behavior?
3: So it's funny you ask that question because this is not our work at all. Um, But there is actually now recent work from a number of labs, um, specifically Colleen Murphy's lab at Princeton. So worms, when I say they eat bacteria, they actually, a lot of the bacteria as you can imagine are pathogenic. Uh, make them sick. Um, And so once they've actually eaten a pathogenic bacteria and so initially they, they don't know that it's pathogenic, they like it, they eat it, they get sick. And then when you expose them to the same bacteria now they run away from it, which makes sense, right? And so uh, Colleen's lab has actually shown recently in some some very nice papers where um, that um, avoidance of a pathogenic bacteria can actually be transmitted through its generations, through its progeny. It actually is mediated, so the uh, worm eats it, it's in the gut, there is a small RNA from this pathogenic bacteria that it senses, the signal goes from the gut to the germline to the neuron and that information is passed down through five generations Um, and then those progeny, though they've never seen that pathogenic bacteria, will avoid it. So it's super cool. There might be other behaviors that are also passed down transgenerationally, but hasn't been looked at.
2: Dr. Brian, what do you think of glia cells? Do they make memory also of the different stimuli or uh, they just act <laughs> of it as it comes over and over?
4: That's a great question. I, I'm not aware of any work really showing memory in the gut necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of work showing neuroplasticity in the circuits, and most of that is in the context of inflammation. So if you perturb the system in some way, uh, you know, the, the properties of the neurons in the glia change um, over a long to- time course. And I don't know if you'd necessarily call that learning, but with the glial cells, they're very plastic. I, I could imagine that if you, you change the circumstances in any way, that glial cell is going to adapt uh, to maintaining homeostasis because that's their main function so i think that they would probably display some types of i guess you could call it sort of learning i guess in in terms of how the circuit responds and how the circuit adapts and the glial cell adapting to that circuit but yeah i don't know if glial cells would do anything really what we would call learning necessarily
0: when you find some things that are being secreted or released by cells, how do you choose which one to focus on? I know that you mentioned that this octopamine story was the one that you focused on there, but I guess both of you, like you focused on ATP, Brian and Piali for that uh, octanol octopamine circuit.
3: So I think for us, it's actually pretty straightforward because uh, a lot of our work is um, based on genetics. So we just screen through a lot of mutants. And then if you have a phenotype, we essentially focus on that one. So a lot of these neurons uh, express multiple neurotransmitters. They express multiple neuropeptides. But it's very straightforward for us to just screen through them and look to see if there's a defect in behavior.
4: Yeah, I mean, for us, we we focused on purines and uh, acetylcholine to begin with anyway, because those are two of the main neurotransmitters and excitatory circuits in the gut. There's probably every neurotransmitter that's in the brain in the gut. Uh, and so once you get into you know the effects of all of these, it could probably get complicated and there, there are probably many, many more that have effects, but these were two of the most likely candidates. And so we started with them just because nothing else was known.
3: Hello, uh, yeah, my name is uh, Maya Kelber and uh, I'm interested to know, the worm has such a, a reduced nervous system, I should say, fewer neurons. And in a lot of these models, there's a lot of redundancy in the system. So at some point, if you were to silence this neuron saying, go this way or go, or don't go this way, will you eventually have a different circuit that will pick up that signal? That's a really good question. Um, And so there's sort of two short answers to that that I'll give. So one of them is that, so if you continuously either optogenetically or chemogenetically silence or activate a given neuron, eventually that neuron will stop responding just because it sort of adapts to the whole process, right? But then as soon as you release that inhibition, it'll actually continue to respond again. Your second question is actually sort of a very deep question, is about this whole, the the small nervous system. And so one, if you don't mind, if I sort of rephrase it, are there circuits that are sort of dedicated to specific tasks? And then, so if you get rid of that circuit, for example, would something else kick in? And that's a really interesting question, because this sort of uh, is an issue of degeneracy in circuit function, where you can actually have multiple circuit components giving rise to the same output. This has been described in many different um, small nervous systems, for instance. And in fact, we actually find that. So if you get rid of a specific set of neurons, you can have a defect in behavior, but then depending on Um, how long you've gotten, so suppose you've got like, you've uh, genetically ablated a set of neurons, there are behaviors for which a completely different set of neurons will kick in and manage to generate that same behavior. But if you acutely block that specific neuron, chemogenetically or optogenetically, then the second set of neurons, it doesn't give it enough time to kick in. So there is actually plenty of degeneracy in the system, which actually gives the system a lot of flexibility in terms of generating behaviors. And it's a very interesting question um, that we're looking at as well. Can I just follow that up? So that's so cool. So if you get rid of the neuron, another neuron will come in and take its place. Do you find that its structure then mimics the structure of the neuron that you got no. rid of? No. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say another neuron, I actually mean a circuit. And so essentially, another circuit can compensate for it, but the way it compensates for it can be very different from the way the original circuit was actually doing that specific function. We don't fully understand it, but it's something that's starting to come up in a couple of uh, in a bunch of different experiments, and so people are starting to look at it very cool
0: thank you you're welcome that was really fascinating yeah it just made me think of like we used to use knockout models a ton we knock out and we assume that that's the only thing that happens and there's so much compensation that occurs um and there's so much learning i guess if we want to use that term
3: what is known about the lineages of some of these glia if they're actually a sort of circuit specific or they come from like some common lineage or they come from completely different ones
4: yeah that's a great question you know so most of them come from neural crest, and they migrate into the gut along with the neurons. And then uh, there, there are some of these precursor cells that have a glial potential and there's, there's others that have a neuron potential. And then there's some that have this remaining neuron glia potential. And Vacillus Pacnus has done great work describing this population and how the gut patterns itself with these populations of precursor cells. But some of the really interesting work coming out now is about these Schwann cell precursors and these actually are a later population of cells that comes in along these extrinsic nerves and populates the gut. And in some of the models of uh, Hirschsprungs, these cells are actually able to repopulate the gut and actually form new, new enteric neurons in glia. And since enteric glia and Schwann cells are so similar, and they're driven towards a similar phenotype in the same environment, it would be very difficult to tell if some of these cells in the myenteric ganglia are actually derived from the Schwann cell precursors, as opposed to the neural crest cells that come in early in development. And so I think you may actually have a mix of cells of different lineages possibly.
0: So we have another question from Brad. Hi there. I have a question for Dr. Gulbranson about what sort of effects you've seen with stimulating glia and the effects that it has on motility. And also some of this discussion on the lineage of these cells and, and Dr. Patchness's work Are there any
4: opportunities there to treat some of these motility disorders that we see in the gut, whether it's a short-term motility disorder or something that's more long-term genetically linked, like Hirschsprungs or something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we definitely hope so. Something like chronic constipation, we could see where, you know, activating glial cells and potentiating the activity of these circuits might be beneficial because that would be a prokinetic at that point. So we would hope that it, you know, something like that would come out of this, Uh, Mustafa, uh, was also working on a project on chronic intestinal pseudo obstruction. And there we've been doing some collaboration with Roberta Giorgio. And what we found there is that glial biolipid signaling is impaired. And that if you block biolipid signaling in mice, it gives you a CIPO-like phenotype where you develop these uh, intestinal obstructions. And so, you know, potentially by Restoring that kind of signaling mechanism in the glia, you might be able to restore some of the function in some in some of these severe motility disorders like CIPo. Also, uh, another part of the research in the lab right now is on visceral pain, and so uh, several of the uh, people in the lab, like Wilma Morales, is working on visceral pain, and she's been studying how uh, glial cells potentiate the visceral nociceptors in the context of inflammation. And I think that's another really promising area where modulating glial cell activity could benefit uh, visceral pain in people with IBS.
3: That's very interesting. Thank you.
0: I was really interested in this, I guess, the cross-generational learning uh, that we had talked about. This made me think whether or not there'd be any sex differences. And we actually have a question uh, from
2: Amy Shepard. So I'm calling in from Boston. Um, and I think you your sex differences, Brian, in the uh, responses to the ascending and descending neurons in response to glia are really fascinating. I wondered if you saw any when you were doing your more specific cholinergic and, and purinergic. Was that true for both sexes or did you see sex differences there as well?
4: Uh, that's a great question. Thanks. Thanks, Amy. The sex differences, I think, were really interesting because, you know, we started doing these uh, stimulations we weren't really sure if we would pick up any sex differences in the circuits because you know we've never looked at this before. And you know, we thought maybe organ level, maybe, but maybe not at the circuit level. Actually, what we saw most of the time was that the populations of neurons and glia that responded were similar, at least the, the magnitude of the sizes of the, the cohorts of cells that responded seemed like they were similar. So it seemed like the, the circuitry was wired in a similar way in males and females. But what we saw in the females was consistently the neurons and glia responded with larger calcium responses to anything. So the, the female neurons and glia were just amped up. They responded much larger than the, the neurons and glia in males. That was consistent in all our experiments, whether we were doing fiber tract stimulation, the field stimulation, or with the, the drugs. The drugs seemed like they affected the males and females in a similar way you know, altering the cohorts of neurons and glia that responded, but just the magnitudes of those responses were different in the calcium responses.
2: Any idea why? Do you have any favorite? Yeah. <laughs>
4: that's that's a good question. I mean, there are probably many, many things that could cause this. You know, I don't know if it has something to do with the endoplasmic reticulum being different in females or is something about calcium release being different in the females. At at this point, your guesses is probably as good as mine or better.
2: As a follow-up, does age have an effect on these cells?
4: Yeah, so actually it does. So what, one of the things we've observed with age is that there's a drop off in these connexin 43 channels expressed by the glia. The glia seem like they're less able to respond and less able to convey that response to the neurons. And so we think that this probably is involved in the slowing of gut motility with age and you lose this Potentiating effect of having the glial cells recruited by neurons. And we see similar things when we knock out connexin 43 channels in younger animals as these old animals with lower connexin 43 expression.
2: I am Parul. I'm also from Duke University, and so since we were speaking about innate and learned responses, so I was just curious: is the like lifespan of these worms enough for us to study all these? differentiate if it is innate and like learned and how do we do that? Just curious.
3: So the typical lifespan of of a wild type C elegans is about 30 days or so. And in, in any kind of associative conditioning experiments that people have done, that's actually very fast. So it only happens like, you know, it takes a couple of hours at most. So whether a young worm and an older worm, um, if they have sort of different responses to to different um, stimuli, they do. But I think in that case, it's a little bit hard to sort of differentiate between whether that's been learned over time or whether they're age-dependent independent, age-dependent changes in the responses. So I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can actually directly answer your question of whether over their lifespan, there is learning that's happening that's changing their responses later.
2: I see. Thank you.
0: So Brad's question on, I guess, translational impact made me think a lot of times some of the work that we do feels a little bit removed from the direct clinical effects that we can see. And I was wondering, really taking like 30,000 foot view, how did you get into studying glia, Brian, and how did you get into studying C. elegans, Bialy, and how did you choose to really start on this field of research?
4: Sure. So I actually started studying the enteric nervous system when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wyoming. I had gone there, I was interested in uh, wildlife biology, and didn't know what kind of research I wanted to get into, was wandering around the halls in the zoology department, ran into this lab that had a poster outside that was on the enteric nervous system. And I said, hey, that's pretty cool. I should go in there and talk to that guy. And so I went in there, it was Paul Wade, uh, who now works at Takeda. He gave me a job in there doing some research and I studied aging in the gut as an undergrad. Then you know, as a graduate student, I wanted to see what else was out there. So I studied chemoreception in the nasal cavity, but it was also communication between non neuronal cells and neurons in the periphery. I knew after doing my PhD work that I wanted to get back into doing enteric neuroscience. And I had also had this experience with signaling between non neuronal cells and neurons. And so I talked to Keith Sharkey, and he was doing some work on enteric glia and was interested in glia to neuron signaling and you know, communication between neurons and glia. So I said, that's a great fit and went there for my postdoc, loved it, and just kind of stuck with it from from then on.
3: For me, I mean, as you uh, mentioned, i I, I was I, as a graduate student, I also worked on pheromone signaling and yeast, and it's I sort of became really interested in seeing how animals respond so precisely to their environment, and then you know, yeast doesn't have a nervous system. (laughs) So as a postdoc, I wanted to find an organism where I could really connect specific genes to behaviors. And I think this is something like C. elegans, flies, I mean, mouse now, of course, also, I think it's absolutely, I still find it absolutely amazing that you can mutate a single gene and see this amazingly dramatic effect on behavior. And then especially in worms, you can you can actually follow it all the way from the effect of that gene on a specific neuron through the circuit all the way to exactly how the behavior is being altered. And that just, even after three decades of this, never ceases to amaze me. That's, I think there's so much to learn. And just it's, I think it's a really exciting uh, area.
2: So both of you really study a very interesting area. Not only this, I can see that you have really interesting lab websites. So how did you determine what to publish on your website? Why did you choose to have these illustrations in your website? And why did you choose to put these things in these lab websites? Yeah.
3: So my website is actually um, set up by a graduate student in the lab, Lauren Tereshko, um, who is, uh, went around the lab and I think just chose the most beautiful pictures that she could find. So I think a lot of the appeal of a website, of course, is the visual appeal. The part of my lab that I didn't talk about, the cilia biology part, they generate a lot of very beautiful pictures. And so I don't think this was a particularly reasoned decision. I mean, I had a little bit of input, but I basically let them design the website on their own.
4: Yeah, I kind of did the same thing. I'm sure mine is very outdated at this point. I need to update it because I'm the one that's maintaining it. And I usually get around to doing that maybe once a year, so I should probably update it. But I did the same thing and chose some nice images, some some videos, some things that would be kind of eye-catching, and then just basically bullet point types of information of what what we do and who's here.
0: Just as a quick follow-up, I thought it was uh, really neat. I I was taking a look on your website, Brian, and I don't know if a lot of labs really publish, I guess, the methodological detail. And you have like methods for each one of the protocols out there. Uh, And then I think, Piali, I thought it was really neat that you have like this section on lab values um, and core values in your laboratory. And what was the motivation behind putting this information out there? And why did you feel it was important to share?
4: It's, you know, in the efforts to be more transparent and to have data be more reproducible, I mean, we've been trying to publish more of the methods, uh, get more of that out there. Uh, eventually, we want to be able to have a part of the le- website actually devoted to a lot of the transcriptomics work that we're doing right now and have searchable databases on there. So we can have some of these Glial databases all together. So it would be a tool for the community. You know, we don't want to be operating in a vacuum and kind of with this in this black box, we want to let people know what we're doing so they can trust the data. And if other people want to Repeat the experiments, they can do it exactly how we did it.
3: So that's actually, that's really great. And I think that I should, uh, uh, we should look into doing that as well. I mean, we tend to actually, for some of the journals, if they allow it, we do tend to upload our, you know, the Excel spreadsheet, which has all the raw data for every single figure that we generated. Um, But to put in the details of the protocols actually on the website is a really good idea. I mean, in terms of the core values for my lab, I mean, um, so like many of your labs, uh, my lab is fairly diverse. I have people from all over the world um, uh, from very different backgrounds. and I myself am an immigrant. I came to this country when I was 18. and so I think it's really important for me to um, specify up front um, what are the things that I value uh, uh, and what I hope that my lab will have in terms of respecting everyone's opinions, respecting their the diversity and having this having sort of shared values of collaboration, of interaction, and also, very importantly, um, the scientific ethics. And I think I wanted to just put it up there so that it's just very obvious to anyone who is interested in joining my lab. And it's a conversation that I also have with individuals as well as as a group.
2: Very interesting. I see science communication nowadays as a very important aspect of science, because when we communicate science in a better way, we can have science spread all around the world so thank you so much both of you for joining
3: us peter Reem, thank you so very much this was super fun thanks for inviting me
2: yeah
4: thank yeah. you so much for the opportunity to share some of our work this is this is great yeah thank you so much
1: <music> thank you all for listening and we'll see you on the next episode for more of our content, you can follow us on Twitter at The Gut Brain Matters or visit our website, thingastronauts.com. The Gastronaut podcast would be impossible without our incredible team Meredith Schmill, our producer and team music composer, and a special thanks to the founder of Gastronaut, Dr. Diego Buhorques and the Buhorcus Laboratory.